Um, with, without any further ado, let me invite Dennis to come on up here. Um, Dennis is a friend of mine who is a, um, a, a pastor, a co-pastor at a church that um, he and uh, his friend planted uh, going three years this fall, two and a half years. Um, and so it's called Garden City Church on the north side. Uh, he's been a, a dear friend. We, we worked actually alongside of one another um, in the same space for years without even really knowing each other in Oakland, um, but through um, a, an organization that really doesn't exist here in Pittsburgh anymore with Made to Flourish, we, we formed a, a friendship, found we had a lot in common theologically and ministerially, and uh, it's been a, a great friendship over the last few years. So, Dennis, um, welcome. Thank you. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Um, yeah, as Chris mentioned, my name is Dennis. I'm, if you don't know me, um, married to a wonderful woman named Julia, and uh, we have five children, um, which is three more than I wanted. Um, but I'm happy for all of them. That's that's like a parent joke. Hopefully. Nobody was offended by that joke. Um, I like all of them a lot. I would die for all of them. But um, I remember the moment that I was like, no, no, okay, let's have three, sure. And then the moment that we found out my wife was pregnant for a fourth time. And then the moment we found out that fourth time was twins. Um, so here we are. Every February, in the northern city of, of the northern Italian city of Avrea, there is a carnival. Carnival lasts for one week. And the final three days of that carnival are known as and set aside for the Battle of the Oranges. Store owners cover the faces of their stores with plastic sheets. Windows throughout the city squares are fortified with plywood. And in several piazzas, which is an Italian word for an open square, think Market Square downtown, eight-foot-tall walls of crates are constructed. And these crates are filled with oranges. Every year, throughout the three-day battle of the oranges, nearly 8,000 people who live in the city and region of Avrea break into nine different teams. And over the course of the three days of the battle of the oranges, they hurl approximately 900 tons of oranges at each other. While 8,000 people are throwing oranges at each other, Thousands more people come together to watch. It's, in one sense, considered the largest food fight in all of Italy. But it's also much more than a food fight. It's also the city's way of remembering and retelling its history. In the 13th century, Avrea was controlled by an evil marquis. A marquis that oppressed the people and controlled the land and exploited the people's labor and resource. He went to great lengths to demonstrate to the people that everything in the region belonged to him. Going so far as kidnapping women on the night of their wedding and then returning them in the morning to their soon-to-be husbands 
as a way of reminding the wife and the husband, you can get married, but your lives and bodies belong to me. Now, the Battle of the Oranges is a mix of history and legend, and the legend that surrounds it goes like this. One night in the 13th century, the Marquis kidnapped a young bride named Violetta. But Violetta is not afraid of the Marquis or his power, and so she fights back against the evil and oppressive Marquis, and she kills him. Violetta ends the Marquis' exploitative reign over all of the people who live in Evrea and all of the people who live in the region so inspired by Violetta rise up together against the Marquis' forces. And over the course of three days, they drive the Marquis' forces out of the region. And in doing so, this townspeople secure their own liberation they rise up and they find freedom from exploitation, oppression, darkness, and evil. Over the course of the three days of the Battle of the Oranges, the people who live in Evrea today reenact that faithful night in the 13th century and the three days that follow it. They take on the roles of the townspeople. Hundreds of other people dress up like the Marquis' soldiers, and they're carted around the city in chariots. And these chariots are brought into different piazzas all around the city, where these teams of people are waiting for them with their baskets of oranges. And they throw the oranges at the people playing the role of the Marquis' forces, driving these evil forces out of their city and region. One of the nine teams is known as the Revolutionaries. And on the night before the Battle of the Oranges begins, the Revolutionaries gather in their designated town square and they have a large communal dinner together. Thousands of people gather together in this one space and they hang banners on the buildings that surround the piazza. And all of the banners have the exact same quote on it. The quote reads, In the heart of the battle, we are never alone. And isn't that something that we long for? To know, to really know that in the heart of whatever battle we might be facing, that we're not facing it alone. And yet, for many of us, the spiritual reality is that we oftentimes feel as though we have been abandoned. We feel like we've been forgotten. Newspapers report on the epidemic of loneliness in our country. People feel isolated and alone. And even though things are hard, even though things feel dark, and heavy, even though we're not always sure we're going to make it through, even though it feels like we're hard-pressed on every side, I think we all cling to the hope that even though the battle rages all around us, even as it feels like we might be overtaken or overwhelmed, we hope that in the midst of it, we're not actually fighting 
alone. We hope that we're being carried, that maybe our victor is near. We want to believe it, but is it true? Just like the people of Avrea, the church sets aside periods of time. Think maybe Holy Week, the week that leads into Easter, where we remember and retell aspects of our story. We develop practices like communion, where we remember and retell aspects of our history and our story. The week of Holy Week in particular, we don't know much about what happens on Monday or Tuesday of that final week of Jesus' life. We know that on Wednesday of that final week, Judas sought out the chief priests. And it stands out to me that on that Wednesday, when Judas went looking for the chief priests, the chief priests did not go looking for Judas. Judas sought out the chief priests. And the gospel writers make clear in that story that the chief priests are surprised when Judas shows up. On Thursday of Holy Week, Jesus gathers with his disciples for what we now know as the Last Supper. On Friday, Jesus is arrested, put on trial, crucified, and buried. And on Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb. The chief priests and religious leaders believe that after three years of trying to contain, quiet, and kill Jesus, they've succeeded. The disciples spend the day in hiding, believing everything is lost experiencing despair and desolation. And the women on Saturday, they hold vigil outside Jesus' tomb. They're the only ones who seem to hold out hope that Jesus might actually do what he had promised them he would do. And over the course of Holy Week, we set aside days throughout the week, Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, to remember and retell these aspects of our story and our history. And then we get to Sunday of that week. Every year we gather and celebrate Easter. That Sunday, the first day of the Jewish week, the third day since Jesus had been buried, Matthew tells us a story of that Sunday in this way. Matthew writes, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men, which is apparently an ancient way of saying that they fainted. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. 
The two Marys go to Jesus' tomb hopeful, wondering if maybe, just maybe, Jesus really would rise from the dead like he promised them he would. There's an earthquake. An angel appears, rolls away the stone to Jesus' tomb, and then the angel sits down. That detail where the angel sits down on the stone, it stands out to me. Because the angel sits down and waits when no one is yet at the tomb. The angel of the Lord is waiting. Waiting to see if anyone will come. Waiting to tell whoever might come that Jesus isn't there, that he's risen from the dead, that he really is who he said he was, that he really is the long-awaited Messiah and Lord, that he really is the Savior and King they'd all hoped he'd be, that everything they had hoped and believed was true. The Marys arrive, and the angel greets them and says to them, He isn't here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see. I love that this story is experiential. The angel doesn't just deliver some facts and then send them on their way, believing it. The angel tells them what has happened and then says, Come closer. Come into the story. You can look and see with your own eyes. You can touch and feel with your own hands. You can experience the evidence and proof that Jesus is no longer here. Can you imagine that moment? The moment, can you imagine what the Marys felt? To hear an angel and have him say, Jesus is risen. He's not here. Just look. And then Matthew tells us that in their excitement and joy, they hurry away from the tomb and go and tell the other disciples who are not there. And as they're on their way to tell the other disciples, Jesus meets them. He meets them. And he says to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. I'll be in front of you waiting for you. Mark, in his Gospel, tells us about this moment where Mary goes to find the disciples. Mark records that moment where Mary finds the disciples this way. He writes, Mary went and told those who had been with him, the disciples, and who were mourning and weeping. The women go to the tomb. The disciples are mourning and weeping. Mark continues, When they, the disciples, heard that Jesus was alive and that Mary had seen Him, they did not believe it. 
The disciples, it seems in this moment, have abandoned hope and have started to believe that Jesus was just another failed messianic pretender who clashed with the Roman Empire and lost the battle. If we go back to the Old Testament and the book of Deuteronomy, Moses makes it pretty clear there that people who die on trees like Jesus did are either traitors or blasphemers. And so in the disciples' minds, is it possible that Jesus, the one that they had been following for years, was lying all along? God's true Messiah doesn't die on a cross. It's as though this crucifixion and the way in which it happens becomes an obstacle the disciples' faith just can't scale. And so when Mary arrives with the good news of Jesus' resurrection, she finds people who had lost all hope. Who are experiencing despair and desolation. And who believed the world had won. That the kingdom of God, if it even was ever real, it wasn't big enough or strong enough or powerful enough to overcome the might of the empire. That darkness had prevailed and the battle was over. It could be just me, but the people in this story that I most identify with, that I get the most, are the disciples. There are days where hope in Jesus feels almost futile to me. Where my own darkness and struggle feels like too much to overcome. Where the brokenness in my own personal relationships feels irreparable. Where I have absolutely no idea how to parent my children. And so there are days when believing that Jesus is real and the story is true, there are days that that's really hard. I wonder if there are aspects of your lives that feel like a battle. Aspects of your lives, relationships that just feel so hard. And I wonder if in those places, in those spaces, in those relationships, if it ever feels like you're just going to lose. Like the seeming inevitability of Rome's final victory over Jesus. A final victory that even Jesus' closest followers thought was decisive and final. I think it can feel similar for us. That it's only a matter of time before our own modern world and our situations and circumstances achieve their inevitable victory over us too. If we look around our world, rising prices squeezing our already strained financial resource. Artificial intelligence that seems poised to make us irrelevant or unnecessary. I don't know if you saw this in the news a few months ago. ChatGPT got a B in an Ivy League MBA program, so that's hopeful for all of us. Mental health struggles we can't overcome. Days we're getting out of bed feel like the most monumental task 
relationships broken along political lines, gun violence ravaging our neighborhoods. Two days ago, four houses down the street from where I live, one of my neighbors was shot four times. Culture wars raging against the vulnerable and marginalized people we love. The ever-present challenge of raising children in today's world. The search for a life partner where we're reduced to a quick glance and a swipe. The pain of people we've loved and lost. The ongoing confusion of deep spiritual questions that sit in our hearts that we just don't know how to answer. And even our own insecurities and imperfections that we are ever so aware of and afraid to tell others about. Sometimes it all feels like a battle with an inevitable outcome. That since we cannot overcome the world, we will be crushed by it. We can tell ourselves all we want that we're going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and not be burned by the fiery furnace of life. We can drive our clothes, drive our cars, buy our clothes, live in our homes, and maybe even medicate away our struggles and for a while stave off the darkness that seems ready to swallow us and exact its inevitable victory. But church, in the heart of every battle, we are never alone. We have a Savior who not only came for us, but overcame for us. Jesus absorbed all of the worst the world had to offer, all of the darkness and despair, all of our sin and brokenness, and overcame it. In the heart of our battles, we are never alone alone we have the lord and messiah with us we have one another we can build strength and courage and enter every battle with hope it might feel like sometimes we're being crushed it might look like our neighbors are being crushed it might feel like the world's final victory truly is inevitable but in light of jesus in light of the resurrection all of that is a mirage the world isn't actually going to win we aren't actually going to be crushed because in the heart of our battles, we are never alone. Because in the heart of our battles, we are being carried by the victor who, like he promised to his disciples, has gone out in front of us and is waiting. There is a foregone conclusion. There is an inevitable outcome. And foundational to our faith, it's this. Jesus wins. It always was this way. It always will be this way. Even in the moments we struggle to believe it. The story of Jesus' resurrection is one way in which we remember and retell our history. It's a way of understanding our current realities and reframing our future. Because Jesus' resurrection reminds us that in the heart of every battle we face, we are being carried by the victor.
Now, I am not sharing this with you in some sort of triumphalist way. I don't mean that because Jesus rose from the dead, every hard aspect of our lives is just going to turn into sunshine and rainbows as soon as we walk out these doors. What I do mean is that as we leave here today, when we return to our homes and our families and our neighborhoods and our places of work, all of the hard things we're walking through, all of the difficult and painful relationships, all of the fears and worries and doubts that we carry, they'll remain But Jesus' resurrection tells us they don't have the final say. Jesus does. The resurrection reminds us that Paul's words recorded in 2 Corinthians are true. In fact, I would say that Jesus' resurrection proves that they're true. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Because of Jesus' victory on the cross. We will be hard-pressed, church, and we will not be crushed. We will be at a complete loss at times and not left to despair. We will be oppressed and harassed, but not abandoned. We will be knocked down and yet not ruined. Church, where do you need hope right now? In what areas of your life, in what relationships, where do you need hope right now? And where do you feel like you're in a battle fighting all alone? In every battle we face, we can know and trust that Jesus does not leave us alone in it. That he's out in front of us, waiting for us. Jesus' resurrection, it enables us to endure all things with hope and expectation. That he will be with us in the midst of our pain and struggle, in the midst of our darkness and despair, and that he's leading us through it. We will experience moments of incomprehensible joy and also deep pain. We will experience moments of great success and moments of complete failure. Because this is what it means to follow Jesus. Because Jesus' own life is marked by moments of incomprehensible joy and deep pain. And Jesus' own life is marked by moments of great success and humiliation. In light of the resurrection, we get to face and endure everything knowing there is a foregone conclusion that there is an inevitable outcome. Jesus wins. It always was this way. It always will be this way. The story of the resurrection is a way of remembering and retelling our history and reframing our current reality and future. That no matter what we face, it will not overtake us, it will not overwhelm us, it will not crush us, because Jesus has already won. In the heart of the battle, we are never alone. In the heart of every battle we face, we are carried by the victor. 
till the day we enter that new and eternal promised land because church, Jesus has already won. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the words and stories recorded in the Bible. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the reality of the resurrection and what it means for us and how it speaks hope for us. So Jesus, be near to us now. Remind us in these spaces and places where we need hope where we feel lost or confused, that you're there with us and that we aren't alone. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.